Welcome to Weird Sauce, a podcast about formulas. In these conversations, I intend to rethink with you the rhythms of our lives. From the exceptional to the routine, I wander into the patterns, the alchemy of experiences, good and bad, from scientists to high achievers. Life is not a long, quiet river, so follow me upstream into the extraordinary, the storms, the mishaps, the components that may inspire you today and tomorrow. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Your health is your responsibility and that of your physician. Always seek advice from your physician before choosing any lifestyle interventions you may have heard in this podcast. Dr. Ronit Lev, uh, good morning to you. Well, good morning from our side in Singapore and welcome to Weird Source. Thank you for welcoming us into your location, I believe, in the west coast of uh, the United States. And could you kindly introduce yourself for our audience? Yes, it's an honor to join you in Singapore. Um, and uh, my name is Dr. Ronit Lev. I'm an emergency and addiction physician, and I practice here on the front lines in San Diego, California. So uh, briefly, I think you have, you're very modest. Your, your, your CV and your bio, which we have in the, in the link of the episode, is uh, very, very impressive, and both in terms of the specialty in addiction, as you just briefly mentioned here, but also the, the, the many hats that you, you clearly have had already in your career. So could you tell us how you got to um, specifically be interested in addiction medicine and where it led you in your career? Yeah, so I, um, um, I'm an emergency physician at first, a clinician. I am one of the few people who actually in medical school um, figured out that I wanted to do emergency medicine. And that's because it was a very new specialty at the time. There were very few uh, residencies around. And uh, luckily, because it really fit my personality, was able to do that and uh, trained in San Diego, where I am right now, by one of the fathers of emergency medicine, uh, Dr. Peter Rosen, who wrote the big textbooks on emergency medicine. And I've always been interested in um, medical leadership, and you know, even as a medical student, being involved in the American Medical Student Association. And when I was in residency, I was involved in emergency medicine residency associations and put together all the residencies in California and continued that type of advocacy, became um, the youngest president of the California chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians, and continued that work in advocating. I say I was wearing the white hat, I was wearing the white hat in the hospital, but also the white hat outside the hospital advocating for the patients in the emergency department and for the specialty of emergency medicine. And that's how I got involved in addiction medicine, because really anybody who practices um, emergency medicine sees uh, patients with addiction every single day, every single shift. The hallways are full of it, um, of patients who, even the peak of the pandemic when people were afraid of coming into the hospital and afraid of dying, our emergency departments were full of patients who were there with alcohol poisoning, um, uh, drug addictions, and complications for drugs. And I started with that, with uh, advocacy on the opioid epidemic. <clears throat> and this was years ago when I started talking about it. People said, well, you're not compassionate. We care about our patients more. That's why we give them more opioids. But I was seeing the other side. I was seeing mothers, mothers like me, who were looking at their children who were dying. And they were very angry at the medical community for, for um, prescribing. And the medical community hasn't didn't really see that part. They saw angry patients in the emergency department who wanted pain medications. And so I started uh, doing safe prescribing guidelines in the emergency department for our community. And then that uh, became statewide. And then other communities around the country um, started adapting parts of our program. And that's what got me the job as chief medical officer at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy to work on policy on a national basis. And really, I brought my clinical input, which is my passion and still is uh, to this day, um, but brought that in a perspective of federal policy 
on opioids and not just opioids, but on safe prescribing and really from there, um, prevention and, and treatment and community solutions to the problems of drugs. Wow. So I'm, I'm very curious, which administration was <laughs> where you working? <laughs> as, as you know, I mean, it's something that's going to interest everybody it's simply on a personal level. Yes. So this was part of the Trump administration. I was very proud to be um, to part to be part of that. I think it's an honor, uh, regardless of the administration. And really, if you think about it, um, drugs are not a political issue. Uh, people who are dying are Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated. Families are rich and and poor of every color, every sex, every orientation. Um, and really, I did. You know, I think when. You know, people ask me, oh, it must have been so hard to work at the White House at a chaotic uh, time. And actually, it, it wasn't because everyone in the office and the subject matter that we were dealing with um, was not political. Absolutely. I think I think the curiosity is always from the personal angle and in, in terms of, you know, chemistry, personality, each each administration brings its own uh, special blend of, of challenges, I'm sure, for people like yourselves who are you know, involved in a task that's so specific. And, and so, as you said, ir irrespective of the administration, the, the issue is there. So that leads me to ask you, um, as, a, as a female, uh, both in, in medicine, physician, uh, and then also dipping in a little bit into policy and, and, and White House and political world, how did you find uh, the challenge coming from medical education, uh, your own medical education experience, all the way to being a senior staff uh, and, and being female, uh, did you experience anything special that in hindsight you thought, okay, so that's really something specific to my gender that, that just occurred? And could you share that with us? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I've been in medicine for over 30 years and I've, I've really seen things evolve uh, when it comes to uh, women in medicine. Um, the most striking thing, I think, is, you know, there weren't as many, maybe 30% of the class was women. Now it's 50-50. Um, and with that comes along with things that are special to women and, and things that are special to women is being a mother, right? I'm a mother of four children. I've had them all throughout my medical career. Um, and, uh, you know, I, in my residency, I was pregnant and it was like, how could you do that to your career? It's like, you know, I, I planned this. I planned my child during a vacation, <laughs> vacation. Um, and uh, and that, that was difficult. And now I look at women in medicine and they get maternity leaves and their husbands get paternity leaves and uh, they have much uh, more um, available to them that, that I didn't. I, I got, there was no such thing as maternity leave. I took four weeks of vacation to have my child, just like all the other residents um, when they took their regular vacation or like the men did when they went, you know, fishing or skiing. Um, and so I think things have really evolved um, for the better for, for women um, than it was when I, when I was there. And so you mentioned effectively doing so many things at the same time and having, you know, you just use the word, I plan my child, which is really interesting because I remember talking with uh, some of the, the doctors that were um, in, in my program for burnout remediation and, and quite a lot of them were female and, and they were sharing some, some really tragic story of uh, child loss uh, due to exhaustions and, and, and shifts, et cetera. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, did you do anything special uh, in terms of your lifestyle behavior? Was it uh, your own personality to get so organized and, and to basically protect your own health uh, while going through a very demanding career and at the same time, you know, being pregnant and at the same time having children later on to manage your home life as well as your career? That demands a huge amount of physiological alignment, if I can use that term. So I'm curious about what kind of things were you doing uh, to make sure that you were physically well enough to do all these things? Um, I don't know that I did. Um, I, I think that uh, I'll probably end up paying a price um, for it in the long run. Um, I think I'm just, I was very lucky also that it fits my personality, right? As a, and I, I wrote um, an article back when I was a resident um, because I got such 
slack for like, how dare you get pregnant while you're in your residency? And I, I wrote an article that I was encouraged to write saying pregnancy and residency mix. And just like, you know, a mother can, you know, you know, clean the house and cook in the kitchen and multitask, emergency medicine is multitasking. That's this that's what's make that profession special. And so I, I have that innate um, skill, I think, like most emergency physicians have. And that was great to have um, as a mother also. You can you could balance, you could juggle, you could do different things. So I think that that, that is a blessing. Um, but how did I stay healthy? I don't know that I did. I don't know that I am to this day. To this day, my I've just learned to um, realize and the people who are in my life that know me and love me realize that I have a very disruptive sleep cycle. I'll go to a day and then a night. And even when I'm not working and even when I don't have to, um, my sleep cycle is is uh, messed up. And uh, I think that that's just, that, you know, I think that that's uh, part of the profession that I got used to doing, but it also, I learned to live with that. Right. So n nothing, nothing specific that you've put in place that you discovered along the way that as adult now I have this is but this is like late in my career and I didn't do it because I I um you know I've had some you know uh, losses uh in my life that made me really evaluate things and I thought you know okay I got to do a little something so I I think I, I made that into a formula also every day I have to be grateful <laughs> of something I have to do something physical to move around, and I have to study something to not medicine that that that's spiritual, and I, I think I do a little bit of that every day, and that that's my that's my health um, formula. Right. So, in terms of, um, could you describe for us the 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 opioid situation in the United States? Because I think we've we've all pretty much heard these headlines um, over the years with, you know, it's an epidemic of opioids, uh, both in terms of um, the type of drugs that popped up over the years, both prescription drugs and obviously hard drugs. Um, could you tell us what's the situation or what was the situation prior to COVID? And um, after we, we sort of do this inventory, we'll talk about whether you saw anything happening during COVID that you think is worth talking about? Well, the data that you go to when you're talking about um, the, an epidemic is mortality. And they say, you know, the, the father of epidemiology said that um, death is a fact and everything else is conjecture. So death is a tip of the iceberg of a, a, a problem, whether it's COVID, you know, epidemiologically, or whether it's uh, opioid epidemic or drug epidemic. And so the peak of the opioid prescription epidemic was in 2011. That was the, the most amount of prescription opioids, the ones from the medical community um, that were involved in mortality. And uh, I, under the Trump administration, and while I was chief medical officers, we got that down for the first time in history. Um, so we got prescription opioids down and mortality down, down up. It was total of 70,000 deaths. It went down to uh, below 70 for the first time in several years. So we were making progress. And then two things happened. COVID hit and um, the floodgates on fentanyl hit. And that combination has really devastated our country and um, uh, drug deaths are over 80,000 now, highest that they've ever been in the history of the United States. Now, when we look at that data, um, I like to look at it as far as supply chain. What part of it comes from the medical community and what comes illicit? And uh, looking at that data, I would actually say that the prescription opioid epidemic is over. Um, it, we are, do not have an issue of overprescribing. Yes, we can always get better. Um, but as far as the number of prescriptions that are being prescribed the, and the, the number of mortality of opioids that are coming from prescriptions, that is at a record low. In California, we have less opioid prescriptions since the, the time that we were actually tracking them statistically since 2008. 
But um, the number of deaths are skyrocketing, and that is really driven by fentanyl. We have found fentanyl in everything. So not just people who have a substance use disorder, an opiate use disorder are dying. Um, people who are out to have a good time and having a party and they're thinking they're having, you know, getting high on cocaine, they're dying. We found fentanyl in every part of the drug supply. Basically, nothing is safe unless you're buying it from a pharmacy that you trust. Um, but if you're buying it in the internet or from your friends, it could have fentanyl in it. Heroin has fentanyl. Methamphetamine has fentanyl. Cocaine has fentanyl. Illicit pills, counterfeit pills that look like a Xanax or oxycodone or hydrocodone or um, ecstasy, that has fentanyl in it. Even vaping products we found with fentanyl. That's been a game changer. And um, that's why I'm advocating for the medical community to include fentanyl in any type of drug test that, that we do. Basically, every hospital in America, and I don't know what the situation is in, in Singapore, but here, if you're getting a drug screen as a physician or a provider and you're worried about you know marijuana or cocaine or, or methamphetamine, you should be worried about fentanyl. And that should be included. And there's a way to do that today. And, and we created a toolkit on on how every hospital can can do that. So, yeah, COVID has been a devastation with the drive of, you know, all the things that make people use drugs and also with the with the supply of fentanyl. So can you just uh, specify, because I think for people outside the medical field, they might not be familiar with what fentanyl is and how is it so different than things that we've had in the past? Because you've mentioned cocaine, heroin. So um, names that people are perhaps more familiar with, although they might not know the, the, the chemical functioning of these drugs. But I think fentanyl is something that is so unique um, in the history of drugs that um, it would be pretty useful uh, to hear from you, uh, a specialist in, in, in addiction. What is the singular difference between that, these drugs and this specific one? All right. So that's a great question. And thank you for asking. Fentanyl is a uh, synthetic opioid. Um, there are opioids that are made from plants. That's what heroin is. It comes from the poppy seeds that makes morphine and makes heroin. It, it grow, it's a crop. And a lot of drugs are crops, right? If you think of cocaine, the coca plant, that's a crop. So the drug um, dealers in the world have become smarter. And it takes, you know, maybe a couple of years to grow and, and harvest cocaine and takes a long time and a lot of manpower to make uh, heroin and to grow that. It's a lot easier. It's a great economic model to just uh, get things um, in a lab and like fentanyl. Um, and you just make it in a lab and there, you have to grow plants and it's a synthetic. Synthetic opiate means that it is made in a lab versus um, a naturally occurring. And the problem with fentanyl is that it is way more potent. It's a hundred times more um, potent than um, morphine. And there's even derivatives of that, like carfentanil, that's even a thousand times more potent. And it takes as little as a, two grains of salt, a very small amount, nanograms, um, to be deadly and be lethal. So that's all you need. And you'd think, well, you know, why would the drug dealers want to kill off their their customers? And I think it's just, you know, part of the the market. And actually, the market is so sophisticated now that now from most of the precursors to chem to fentanyl is coming from China and then going to Canada or Mexico where the labs there assemble it and and, uh, and distribute. That, that sounds um, terrifying, and it is terrifying. Um, so the, the other thing that I'm, I'm curious about is having read some of the the route that it gets into the United States, and you mentioned some of the routes in terms of the geog geography. Um, it, it, how did this, do you know the history of how that it became such a overpowering drug over other ones? Is it the case that it's cheaper uh, and therefore that, or that it's actually much more accessible in terms of criminality, so you don't have to have a criminal um, uh, you know, context to get it? So is it you know easily to... To, to access this on the internet, have there been significant route changes, both in terms of the financial routes and the access routes that have made this so prevalent? 
Yeah, I, I think, um, right, it takes only a little bit amount to, to kill, right? Uh, you know, you take, you take a lot more of for, for heroin and, and methamphetamine and um, as far as volume. So, it takes, so in that sense, it's, it's the economics of that. And um, you just need a little envelope in the mail. Yeah, um, so I've seen them smuggled in burritos for food across the border. Um, so it's, a, it's being smaller, it's easier to, to smuggle. And is it also uh, reasonably cheaper than other drugs that are in existence? Yeah, I think um, I don't. I won't be able to quote you the exact price for fentanyl, but but yeah, I think it is. It's cheaper to make, right? It's making something in a lab is is cheaper to make than than growing uh, a crop, the agriculture. Right. So, in your mind, so what's what's aching the American mind or the the world mind? Why why are we in a situation where? Um, opiates to effectively replace or a way to cope or a need? Why do you think society has, has got to where it is, and particularly the society that you live in and you practice in? Oh, that's a good question. And, I, you know, the issues of drugs has been around since, you know, history itself. There's always been that problem. Um, but, but I think access uh, is making it more available. And... Um, and the, the culture of drug use. Um, and I think that there is a, a movement to normalize drug use. And it, it starts with um, childhood. So if you could, they say, because it's true, that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And uh, for every dollar we spend on prevention, we save you know, $18 later on. For every drug, for every dollar we spent in treatment, drug treatment, we save $7. So we really need to, if we really want to tackle this problem like Iceland has, we need to um, work an effort on prevention. And we're just not doing that. As a matter of fact, we're doing the opposite. I have not met a patient who overdosed on fentanyl that didn't start their journey on drugs with marijuana. And what are we doing? We're, we're legalizing it. We're normalizing it. We say it's healthy. It's good for everything. Um, and I, I see that we are, we're not learning from history. You know, when tobacco um, uh, started, um, it was healthy. It helped anxiety. It helped schizophrenia. Everybody was using. Three out of four doctors would recommend this brand of cigarettes. Even there's pictures of the head of the Cancer Association smoking a cigarette. And now it's taken a hundred years, but we know about the harms of tobacco. And now, then we did it again with opioids. Oh, well, everybody should use opioids. It's nobody gets addicted to opioids and it shouldn't be just for cancer patients. It should be anybody with pain. And on a scale of one to 10, nobody should be in pain. And we learned that was a mistake. And now we're cleaning up from that mistake. And now we're doing the same thing, um, bigger and stronger, and, and smarter industry with marijuana. And it's like, oh, well, you know, it, it helps with all these diseases. It, it, you know, nobody dies from marijuana. And yet, every day, I take care of marijuana poisoning in the emergency department. Um, so we, we haven't come to grips in, in, in our society, and we're spreading that mentality around the world um, as far as normalizing drug use, which I think is, is a mistake. And in terms of so preventing the prevention, something is preventing prevention because obviously the logic and the intelligence and the data says we should be doing this. The history says we should have done this before. We haven't. So obviously some incentives is preventing the, the logic of prevention. And primarily, where do you think these incentives, these negative incentives are? Well, I would look at what happened with tobacco, what happened with opioids, and now what's happening with marijuana. Just follow the money. Uh, money and and lobby. There's you know a huge push for that, but um, you know again st statistically, we know that the brain is growing until age 25, 27. There'll always be people who have addicted to drugs. I, I mean, there always will be. There always has been. But if we want to get that total number down and not create a pipeline of people who are um, 
addicted to any drugs, I mean, today it's fentanyl, tomorrow maybe something else, then we have to protect the growing brain. Somebody who starts using drugs before the brain is done growing, their odds of developing an addiction is four to seven times higher than someone my age. So if we can protect you know, our young brains until they're 25, 27, that's not a teenager. Those are like past college students. But if we can protect that brain, we would have less overall addiction in our society. And that's for all drugs. That's alcohol, tobacco, yeah. marijuana, everything. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned at some point vaping um, at a distance. I, I remember thinking when these first uh, vaping company came up and they were tagged as quote unquote technology company, um, <laughs> not as drug delivering company. And then they were allowed for a significant amount of time. I don't know if they're still. Are. I mean, that, that was a, a public health mistake. Yeah. That's we, we've allowed our my profession, the medical profession has allowed non-physicians to practice and advocate medicine. And we're paying the price for it. But for every, there is a great article out there that shows that for every one person in the world who maybe, maybe stopped smoking cigarettes because of vaping, and those are studies out of Europe. I don't know if American culture is the same as a European culture, but for every one European um, that stopped smoking cigarettes um, through vaping, we've created 80 adolescents that would never have started in the first place by putting that out in the market. I know, really, a, a public health catastrophe. Um, you know, they they mixed it as a smoking cessation tool, but it but but it's it's not because if you look at public health and and uh, and make a decision as a public health matter, you would never have allowed such a product on the market. So that leads me to to ask a question. And you, you said your mother, and, and and I think there's a lot of people out there who are going to say, right? So, what what tools in this ocean of confusion? Um, it seems that there is a separation between the so-called expert, so let's say the, the you know the physician, the medicine as a field, communication, and what we see on the internet. The idea that company is separately capable of advertising products that are actually nefarious for general health, and yet they're allowed to do this. So if you're just a single person trying to raise a child or trying to protect somebody that you love or you care for, what can you do to find the right information and to uh, take action to some extent to protect a loved one against this, this horrific situation? Because it seems to be quite accessible. Well, um, that's, that's a great question. Um, and, uh, right. I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, how do you know what's correct and what's not correct and what, and what you're reading? And I think that that's a, a problem, um, that we're say we're having globally, but how do you know? I mean, people aren't trusting the COVID vaccine, you know, because there's so much distrust. They don't know, well, you know, should I take it? Am I naked? Am I going to get sick from it? And while they're seeing next door, people dying from COVID. And that's how much the distrust is in systems, um, you know, throughout the world. And I think that that's, you know, the, the problem that we have in our, in our culture and our social media culture and where we get our news that causes such a division in our society that doesn't make sense, really, because people are not so black and white. People are very much gray. Um, so this is something that's happening around the world and it's affecting all parts of the society, in, including the issue of drugs. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say as a parent is um, setting an example. And even if you have a problem yourself, that doesn't mean you can't be an, a good example to your children. If you have an issue with alcohol, you can still be a good example to your children by saying, you know, this is a problem for me. I'm really trying to work on it. Please don't be like that. It's really causing me trouble you know, whether it's, it's alcohol or tobacco or, or other drugs. So that's one thing as an, as an example. And just understanding your, um, the, the principle of protecting the growing brain of, of any type of drugs. And in, Cal in California and around all the United States, we have coalitions of active parents and, and communities that work on drug prevention. Um, and I don't, and, uh, that are have experts that deal with that. So if that's uh, something that's important to you, you can do that. As far as protecting yourself what, with what you're buying and knowing that it's safe, um, 
There's a lot of claims on the internet now buying anything, you know, magic mushrooms and CBD and THC and um, a lot of fraud in, in what you're in what you're buying and people getting trouble for that. There is a USP seal that anything that um, any herbal product, and this is at least in the United States, if you buy vitamin D because you're you know worried about COVID or zinc or vitamin C or any of the herbals that, that people buy, there's no regulation of that unless that company went through a standards process. And if they have a USP seal, then you can trust that what you're buying is really what they're what you're getting. Um, because there have been studies out of JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, that bought a bunch of CBD products and bought a bunch of a THC uh, product and found very literal accuracy in what the label uh, showed and what the product really was. And just for the, again, for the audience, because, you know, out here in Singapore, our drug policy is very, very stringent. And people have, I think it's not just here. In general, when we talk about drug, we have all kinds of fantasies and all kinds of predetermined, you know, idea of what we think a drug addict is like. Um, given how much and how much experience you've had of actually dealing with people who have drug addiction, can you talk to us about, you know, this myth? Um, because I think they're so pervasive. It is, and it's something that we're getting better at here in the United States, and that's addressing the the stigma of addiction and understanding that somebody who has an addiction has a chronic relapsing disease of the brain. If you have diabetes, you have a chronic relapsing disease. If you have asthma, if you have hypertension, you have patients who are taking their medicine, not taking their medicine. Um, they had a bag of potato chips. Now their blood pressure is high. And we've shown studies um, that compare relapsing rates of hypertension and asthma and diabetes and, ki- and compare that to the relapsing rates of somebody who has an addiction and show that that's the same. So really making an effort of treating addiction like any other medical disease. And going further, one of the things that we did while I was at the White House is is held an event bringing insurance companies together to really address addiction as the whole part of medicine. So really, um, you're a human being. You have uh, physical issues, mental health issues, and addiction issues, and they're not separate. You're, they're all part of you and really bringing that all together. And what I would say is that you, if you break your arm and come in the emergency department to see me, I'll get an x-ray, put you in a splint, and I'll send you to a specialist. And we really wanted to see in America where if you come to the emergency doc, hospital or to your primary care doctor and you have an issue with addiction, you would also get a referral to a specialist. We don't have that infrastructure yet. But um, that's that's the vision to to grow that that ability. Do you think in America um, there's still a sense that people who quote unquote end up being an addict, which is also semantically very interesting as a term, you end up as an addict. So it's a finality that you actually intended for, right? Um, do you think there's still this perception that um, it's just a subgroup of people who become addict, or rather that anybody? Uh, given an opportunity, and by this I don't mean a, a good one, but uh, you know, a context exposure would could would become an addict. I think the opioid epidemic brought that to the medical community because it used to be very separate. It used to be, oh, well, we don't do methamphetamine and heroin, and that's another group, and and there would be a very much of a division in that. But the opioid epidemic made the doctors, myself included be the people who are supplying the drugs that people got addicted to. And we saw with our own eyes how, um, you know, well-meaning physicians created a whole generation of people who were addicted to opioids who otherwise would not have been. And the statistics meant for, oh, well, nobody gets addicted to opioids to 100% of people who are on it for a long time become addicted. So we saw that in our, with our own eyes within, you know, our generation um, in, in medicine. And the silver lining is that that brought the understanding and the treatment for addiction um, more to the front uh, forefront. Are we there yet? No, no. There's still stigma, and there's still physicians who you know don't want to deal with that population. Um, the proof of the hope is that there's only over 20 million Americans living in recovery who have 
you know, jobs, who have served at the White House, uh, who've had a, a substance use disorder that they have overcome. And part of the stigma campaign is changing the vocabulary. I don't think changing the vocabulary by itself it, it does things. I think physicians and, and, and anybody gets, you know, frustrated and has stigma when they can't do something. But when they understand that there are solutions um, and that brings more uh, compassion. Um, so we're trying to have people move away from calling people addicts and say that they have their people who have a substance use disorder. They actually did studies and, and uh, you know, used the same script and asked a bunch of um, nurses and healthcare workers, do you recommend jail or do you recommend treatment for this case scenario? They, uh, they had the same identical case scenario. And in one, they used this drug addict. And the other one, they said, this person with a substance use disorder. And when you change your language, it created a change in perception, even for treatment. I think it's this it's a paradox because I remember thinking it's it's very curious when we you know when you see social scenes you see a lot of people drinking and when you celebrate something the issue is you know oh well you should celebrate with alcohol and you sit there and and yet this is the same society will view somebody with a drug addiction as a failure as somebody that's can't cope or something that is to be shunned or covered up it's it's to some extent it's the same it's the same uh, protocol. It's just a different drug of use uh, of choice. And it's not, it has a social determinant in one case that's accepted and in another case it's not. So I'm wondering, uh, you, you briefly mentioned the fact that United States, at least some of the, the states in your country already legalized marijuana. So I'm, I'm wondering, where do you see this in terms of going both in terms of public health uh, risks. I mean, you mentioned some of them before, but also uh, normalizing to some extent this problem. Uh, would you think that this will bring, this will be some of the good civil, silver lining that could come out of legalizing marijuana, or you don't think so? I think it'll take time. It took uh, time for tobacco, um, but tobacco started with no, you know, no data no statistics, right? People were seeing these black lungs and saying, these black lungs didn't happen for tobacco. Who said? And nobody dies from one puff. And that's why it took 100 years. With opioids, we had data always. These prescriptions are coming from the medical community. We had data always from prescriptions and mortality. And that's why it was a 20-year shorter type of uh, problem. Marijuana is back where tobacco was. But with um, a huge movement now to, again, normalize it, say that it's good and, and hide, actually hide the statistics. And we, um, we created a new organization and maybe there's somebody from Singapore who would be a representative from Singapore. It's called um, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. And we're a group of physicians who are educating on the harms of marijuana bringing the kind of the other side. And uh, I encourage your listeners to go to isaac1.org, which is our website, I-A-S-I-C-1.org. And there's a library of 30 different categories from addiction to autism, to pancreatitis, to violence and PTSD and suicide and pediatric overdoses and cannabis hyperemesis syndrome or scrometing and the medical literature attached to that. I mean, there's over 15,000 articles already now in the medical literature um, warning on the harms. It only took 7,000 for the Surgeon General to, um, to issue his warning on tobacco products. We're past that with marijuana. Um, so I think, um, I think for the time being, we're ahead of the curve. And then hopefully it will take 50 years, not 100 years. But I've lived through this. I've lived through the opioid epidemic when I was in the front of the curve and people said, you know, you don't know what you're talking about and you're not compassionate. Um, and then history proved um, that I was right. And I, I wasn't right because I'm such a genius. I just saw a different angle than other people. I saw and talked to the mothers who were losing children. And those are the same people that I'm talking to now when it comes to marijuana. I see it and find it in my patients. I see it in the community and I see a different angle that the rest of the public isn't seeing. So I, I have no doubt that this awareness will come. Um, I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime. 
And and in your perspective of this um, this kind of rumble and tumble that we've been in with the pandemic, I think worldwide in different ways depending on the country, and how much it's affected people in terms of uh, reality, if they got sick or financial stress, if they lost their job, or even just not seeing how the future comes out from some of your freedom having been taken away to some extent because mobility has been a change. You can't hop on a plane as easily as you could. You have to wear a mask in some places. So how do you think this will play out or has played out in your experience as a physician uh, in relation to addiction? Well, I, I think the data of the number of people who are addicted um, and the number of people who are dying speaks of itself with COVID and something we predicted. And then I definitely see it in the emergency department. I mean, I worked the other day where I admitted three people into the hospital for GI bleed, internal bleeding from alcohol. Um, it, it, again, it's not just street drugs, or, um, uh, but, you know, alcohol people are turning and, and older people. And if you look at like I didn't go to the grocery store for a long time during the pandemic. I just ordered things. Um, when I went to the grocery store for the first time, I noticed how all the alcohol aisles were now at the front of the store and and more robust. The market did that. And also um, in California where marijuana is legalized, marijuana was declared an essential service. So you can, you know, go to the grocery store and go to your pot shop and you couldn't go to church and you couldn't go to the gym. And that's that's where our priorities were, and and we're paying the price for that. Oh, that sounds that sounds pretty 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 bizarre as a concept yeah, of priority, absolutely. especially with the gym. I'm, because, I'm glad I'm glad you see that because other people didn't. <laughs> well, in Singapore, we're, we're pretty strict with uh, both with the gym and with the marijuana. But in in case of 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 uh, the this sort of thing, I think uh, looking at at the next few months, and, and I don't know uh, what state you're in in terms of um, of the, the pandemic state. I understand that you are uh, most of the population is getting on its way to be vaccinated in, in the U.S. So do you see that uh, in the next few months things are going to improve in terms of people's perception of not back to normal, because I doubt that's the case yet, but it's it's more bearable day to day. What what are what is your perspective? Um, are you asking in terms of just uh, life in general versus addiction? The pair, because I think they will they probably go hand in hand in terms of a sense of comfort and joy and something to look forward to. I I think um, in, in terms of the public, things have have kind of opened up. Um, you know, there, there's a sense like if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. And if you don't have a ma vaccine, uh, you should wear a mask. But maybe you're going to lie about it and not we, we're not in such a strict society. Um, so it'll be uh, as a as a physician, I got vaccinated back in December. I didn't trust it quite uh, so well. I kept my N95 on wherever I, I went. And now I think the data shows that it's really pretty protective and um, and we've had a, a dinner uh, gathering of our all of our ER doctors without masks, everybody vaccinated. And so I think things are, you know, society is opening up. Um, and, um, it, and we'll have to kind of watch watch how that goes because I don't know if people will need boosters or, um, uh, you know, the medical the medical profession was really the, the guinea pigs since we were the first ones to, to get it, then we will be the, the ones to need the boosters uh, first to it. But I do think society is opening up. Um, uh, as far as the issue of addiction, we're going to have to deal with the aftermath because it's not like society is opening up and now addiction ends. No, we've created more people who have a substance use disorder and now we have to increase our efforts on uh, treatment and hopefully put in just as much effort into um, prevention. And so to, to begin wrapping up this conversation that we've had, um, I'm, I'm wondering as, as a human being, what was your own experience of going through this uh, COVID and, 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 and being an, an addiction person? Were you, because I think that would be in the, in the conversation in the mind of anybody. Would you, were you tempted at any point to just fall off the wagon and have a drink or, you know, take something to cope? Or have you learned enough? Because I know some physicians do that sometimes. So where, as a human being, did you go through this with your, you know, physician hat on at all times? Or did you find it really difficult at times? 
Um, I, I, I think that you'll find some people who actually even thrived during this uh, time, learned new things about themselves and explored. Um, I think I'm one of those people. I, I came into the pandemic uh, back in February, knowing that this is going to be a cluster. You know, I've been studying disasters um, for years as an emergency physician. It's part of our education. We've always, you know, thought about, you know, germ warfare and disaster medicine and preparing for something. And then I very early on realized this is happening. It's going to be a mess. And um, we really thought we're going to work to die. And we had to, you know, demand our N95. And I, you know, I remember that. And, um, and I'm a germaphobe. So I'm a germaphobe ER doctor who's walking into the emergency department. And um, so that, I think we all went through our neuroses. And um, I probably still have some of those, right? I can't like touch a doorknob without immediately feeling that I need to wash that hand or hand sanitize. I don't think, I still don't go anywhere without that. Um, even though we've learned that that's, it's not so much, it's less contact um, uh, transmission. Um, as far as uh, me, I, I, that's never been my way of coping. Uh, I don't, I really don't drink alcohol or um, attempted to do any of that. I think my, I appreciated the simple things in life so much more than I ever have through this pandemic. Having an N95 on your face for 12 hours, not eating or drinking because I'm afraid of dying. Uh, when I came home and took my mask off and took a walk, you know, around the block with no one around, I, that, that was such a gift. I, like My greatest gift was to be able to, to breathe and walk around. And I, I, I had such an appreciation of that that I I didn't have before. So, Dr. Lem, if, if our audience wants to find out more about your program, t- tell us tell us um, before we ask you your your very special weird sauce. Tell us about your program. <laughs> By the way, I love I love the weird sauce name. It's a great name. I too have a podcast. My podcast is called High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. I bring different guests who answer uh, questions from the audience. And you could find that on my website, hightruths.com, or on Spotify, uh, Google, Apple, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can uh, follow me and hopefully you get me uh, five stars and, and, uh, and bring some good conversations and, and solutions. I, don't, I, I have discussions in order to drive people to think differently and bring solutions into their own community to the issues of drugs. And if you want to hear, learn more about the International Academy on Science and Impact of Cannabis and learn about the various harms um, that's published in the medical literature, that's isaac1.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org. Um, and that's the best place. I look forward to, to hearing from you. And uh, 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 thank you so much. And great to, to hear from, from Singapore. Well, it's, um, I'm sure people will, will check you out and check your podcast. And then to finish, I have two questions. So, of course, what is your weird sauce? But that would be the, the last one. But the one before this is in, in view of, of what we are facing still, are you hopeful that, um, you know, both the U.S. and the world in general um, are going to make a, a great, great progress in terms of this management of addiction? Um, are you are you hopeful both in terms of the, the data, the, the science, and maybe new tool and, and new policies that we could bring around this to really tackle this because it's such a huge uh, world uh, uh, size problem? Um, I am hopeful. There's a, a lot of good things, like I said, that have happened with the opioid epidemic, getting the medical community involved and on the table is wonderful because you get the medical community, uh, we say, listen, you're over-prescribing opiates. And then um, I don't like to micromanage. And and a lot of policy and government is like, Mike, you have to do this X, Y, Z. If you just tell the medical community a problem, we have 
people still in pain and too many opioids. And they come up with amazing solutions of, of getting people in less pain with no opioids in very creative ways, better surgery outcomes uh, with less pain, creative um, things, uh, new types of medications, uh, new types of uh, um, anesthetics. Um, and, and so I think, you know, we're doing a lot in terms of pain. Uh, treatment, understanding addiction treatment that's starting in medical school and beyond. Um, I think the the whole issue of addiction, understanding the science of addiction has really progressed. The treatment for opiate use disorder is really getting momentum momentum, um, around the entire country. And we still have challenges. We have challenges of um, methamphetamine use disorder. Um, Alcohol has always been uh, key and, and problematic. And, and I mentioned that the, even the awareness of marijuana isn't there. So we take a few steps uh, forward, a few steps back, and, um, and that's kind of, that's life. That is indeed. So to conclude this uh, really wonderful conversation and, and this window into uh, the, the work that you do and how you got to do it, I would love to hear and for the, uh, the audience here to hear, what is your weird sauce for life? Um, All right, I need help with this one. What's an example of a weird sauce? If life is a dish, then every person makes a dish, the same recipe, but has a special ingredient, a special way to do it, and that's how they get through it, and that's how they they strive. So some of our guests have come up with really very unusual things. I don't delete your answer, but it's basically what's your secret sauce to have succeeded in all the stuff that you've done and to keep you going uh, ahead of whatever you're going to do next. I I don't know my secret sauce. I feel like I'm, I don't know. I feel I'm very blessed. Um, um, I, I have a good drive. I've always wanted to do better. And um, what I've learned as an older person that I didn't have as much as a younger person is every day is a, uh, is a chance for a do-over and to do even better. Right. So every day you can look back and say, wow, you know, these are the things that you've accomplished. And and even things even when things don't go so well and they're not so perfect and everybody has, you know, crappy days. Tomorrow is a chance for a do over. You're going to start fresh, start with a great attitude and and make it a great day. Oh, that sounds pretty perfect as a sauce. (laughs) (laughs) You could always throw out your old sauce and start with a new recipe if you want. It's not, it's it's okay. (laughs) Thank you so much for uh, having this conversation uh, with us from the United States. Uh, We hope you will be safe and you will do well going forward and we'll check you out on your podcast and your, um, your website. Thank you very much for having us. And thank you. If this conversation stopped you in your track, share it with your network. You never know whose life you might change for the better. Thank you for listening. Stay curious about our next guest and stay curious about life.